welcome back to the Casting Light Podcast. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Instagram at podcastinglight, we tweet at podcastinglight, and you can find us on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Today on the show, we have Mike Wood. He is a lighting designer all over the country. He is an educator, and he's also the creator of the Theatrical Lighting Previs Contest. He is a graduate of the University of South Florida College of the Arts in Tampa. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, Jason. Thanks for having me today. I'm really excited. And we also have a frequent collaborator of Mike's, Abby May. She attended the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. She's now the lighting supervisor for Ailey 2, and she's also a freelance lighting designer all over the country. Welcome, Abby. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. And can the two of you please tell me about the early connection you guys had? Uh, Mike, I believe you were <laughs> teaching Abby. Yeah, I'll let, I'll let Abby tell this story. I like hearing her version better. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I was in 10th grade, and we had just done a production of Fiddler on the Roof, and I was on the costume team, and that was kind of the track that I was going down uh, in high school. Um and Mike approached me after the show. He was my tech teacher at the time. And he approached me after the show and said, on the next show, you're going to do lighting with me. You're going to call follow spots. And I basically said no, because I had no interest <laughs> in doing that. I was diehard costumer. Um, and he said, well, you have to because it's for your grade. And I have I did the show and I've never done costumes again. So I kind of got stuck down this path. <laughs> So what was it that led you to costumes, and then what was it that got you to flip so completely over to lighting? So costumes, actually, I used to watch this show when I was little, That's So Raven, and she makes her own clothes in the show, and I just thought that that was really cool. Um, so my mom taught me how to sew, and I went to a magnet middle school and did their costuming program there, and then I ended up going to Blake, which is... Um, where Mike taught and they had a costuming program that was kind of falling apart with the teachers leaving. Um, and so there was kind of this like weird gap. And then when I finally transitioned to lighting, it like there's very specifically this cue and I can't even tell you what song it was in, but I remember the exact look, the entire stage. And I just kind of was like, well, crap, I'm not going to do anything else anymore. That's really cool. I didn't, you've never told me that before. <laughs> I don't think yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, and she's she's being a little modest too. I mean, she called that show for me a chorus line, and then the next year was my student production manager. Um, she was directly working with teachers and rental groups and stuff like that as like a you know a twelfth grader in high school, and it's been really cool to watch Abby uh, kind of grow in this career since then. Because then she went on to college, and now she's doing all this really cool stuff. And a lot of times I've been jealous of the stuff that she's done. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. I wish I could do that. Um, but I'm, I'm just like, I'm just so proud to see what she's doing and to also have been a small part of that uh, journey for her. You know, Mike, it seems like the importance of bringing people in, having them work with you, learn from you, and then letting them move on and you know, do their own thing and having it be awesome. It's clearly important to you. Tell me about why. Um, I, you know, I think it kind of goes back to when I was starting out. I, you know, I grew up in the the Tampa, St. Pete, kind of Central Florida area, and there wasn't really a lot of of theater. There still isn't. I mean, there's some really amazing professional theater companies there, but there's not many. Um, and so I didn't really have much of guidance, any kind of guidance or um, clear direction for a while of where to go. And I was just kind of figuring it all out as I went. 
And I think that at some point, I don't even know if it was a conscious decision, but I think I just kind of decided, hey, I didn't have this, but I have the opportunity to give this to to the other people that are in my life right now and these young people and these collaborators and stuff. So I'm going to do everything I can to to make sure that I'm I'm, I'm going to be that person for them that I didn't have for myself, I guess. Um, and that's kind of been the I guess subconscious kind of uh, operation that I've had since I started teaching over a decade ago now. How did you end up in the business? How did theater find you? Um, so I actually started when I was very, very young. Um, you know, my parents both had nothing to do with the arts. My mom was a nurse. My dad worked in fiberglass. Um, so maybe I got some of my construction side of stuff, or I know I did from my dad, but not really an arts family or anything like that. But they used to take me to see shows. They, my mom loved show tunes, so she would play show tunes for me. So I grew up listening to show tunes. Uh, I went to see my first show I ever saw. I don't remember how old I was. I was probably six or seven. And I saw the touring production of Cats at the local performing arts center in Tampa. And I just remember being just kind of like Abby said, just so mesmerized by the lighting. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. And of course, that young, I didn't really know why. I was way too young to really place it. And then I saw a bunch of other shows. I saw Showboat. I saw Grease, which I was probably way too young to see Grease at the time. Um, <laughs> but I saw those shows. And and then the next thing I knew, like I was uh, I was you know, the early days of the internet, like researching these different kinds of lights and looking at pictures of stuff. And while all the other kids in school were like doodling all kinds of stuff, I was doodling techno beams. I still have some original drawings of these like techno beams that I would draw because at the time I thought that was the only light that was out there that I could <laughs> that I could use. Um, so I did all that. And then uh, I actually fell before I fell into lighting, I fell into sound. Uh, so I went to a, a Catholic school for K through eighth grade. And of course, I was in the church at the school choir and the church choir and stuff like that. And I decided, hey, I, I would rather sit behind this soundboard than than sing. And so that's what I did. I did that every week at our school masses. And then I did it on Sundays. And then I started getting into lighting more in, in probably in middle school. There was a guy named Steve Fabian, who I, I think I owe where I am today to a lot of his guidance. Um, he was a, a parent of, of another student at the school. And whenever we did Christmas pageants, he would bring in his, you know, 16 channel NSI two scene preset board and some park hands on trees. And I would help him set it up and I would run all the cable. And I just like fell in love with that. And then when I got to high school, uh, his, his daughters had moved on to the same high school I was going to, and there wasn't really any kind of lighting person at the school other than our drama teacher. So, uh, Steve was there and he was doing lights for all the show choir concerts and all the band concerts and stuff like that. And he remembered me and I started doing that. And that's kind of where I started the journey into the lighting world. And, and like Abby said, never really looked back after that kind of just went with it and, and forgot to maybe uh, do something else. And uh, now here we are. Okay. And where are you professionally now? Um, so before COVID, I was mostly working in uh, in the theater world. So most of my most of my work, I'd say, in the last few years has been eighty percent large musical theater, big scale musical theater, or um, doing a lot of new plays or experimental kind of stuff. Um, I, last year, twenty nineteen, kind of coming into this year, I started to go into a little bit more corporate stuff because I was looking to kind of have a little bit of a of a steadier life, <laughs> um, where I could be at home a little bit more and not on the road for you know the majority of the year. And then, of course, all that evaporated recently as well. Where is home? Uh, now I'm in Nashville. So I originally am from Tampa, St. Pete area. Uh, 2015, I moved to New York. I was in New York for four and a half years. And then last summer, my wife, last summer being 2019, my wife and I moved to Nashville. Um, she had a pretty great job opportunity. 
And, uh, you know, again, I was looking to kind of shift gears in the, in the industry a little bit. And so I was like, oh, Nashville, there's a lot of cool stuff. There's a lot of great corporate work happening. Obviously, music is happening. Um, let's see what I can I can make happen in a new city. So that was great uh, until COVID. And, and so now it's just kind of I've seen the, a lot of a lot of the inside of my house um, was really all I've, I've done in the last few months, like most of us have. Have you been working on anything since it started? Mostly the stuff I've been doing, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this later. I've been working on some of my little software projects that I have. I've done a lot of little hardware projects around the house, both for future production work and also just some home automation stuff. I've um, been learning a lot of new skills. Um, and uh, I've got a couple of projects this fall that look like they might be going forward. So I've been kind of cautiously optimistic about those. But really, other than that, I mean, no production work. I haven't really done any kind of like live streaming or anything like that. As far as like production work for live streaming, I've done some live streams of my own, but not uh, not for any kind of theaters or anything yet. How about you, Abby? Um, yeah, I mean, I kind of have not really been doing anything either. Just a lot of like personal things. Um, I finally went through all of the pictures on my on my laptop that have been here since like 2015. So now I have those all organized and ready to edit, which is a whole other project. Um, I mostly have kind of, I went home for a little bit to my parents' house in Denver. And um, now I'm in California at my boyfriend's parents' house and going to go back to New York and enjoy sitting on my couch for a little bit after that. But there's, we're supposed to start back up with Ailey 2 in November um, for a hopeful January tour. But it's still so up in the air. I feel like the, that uncertainty has been the thing that's been so difficult for so many people. Yeah, a lot of my projects, um, you know, they have a backup plan upon a backup plan. And I'm sure everybody has the same thing. And it's like, well, what do we I, I don't want to spend a lot of time working on something when I know that it's just going to it's going to get postponed or it's going to you know go to the next backup plan. So it's this, it's this balance of uh, of of not putting off too much stuff until the last minute, but also not doing work when it's not going to turn into anything. But that being said, I also don't, I mean, there's nothing else to do. So it's not like that time is, is being, uh, is going to be wasted for anything. So I do understand that, but that seems like a good segue into the contest because we just talked about, you know, what are you up to? Well, that was a thing that we, you know, that everyone was doing for a minute there and it was good. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, I did the, the theatrical previs contest. Um, that was my kind of my big quarantine project. I had, I have I had a couple of quarantine projects that I've called them. The first one was trying to turn all of my like master classes and stuff that I used to do at thespian festivals and, and schools into online formats. So the first couple weeks I like did nonstop live streams and that was really cool. But I got very tired of that very quickly because it's a lot of work to put that together and then, you know, and to actually do the stream. And then the next thing was this previs contest. And um, I think the coolest thing about it was just seeing everybody respond so well to it and being like, hey, this is something that I can do that's some kind of a semblance of normal um, in this time. And I, that was the best part for me. I know for me personally, it. I didn't realize how desperately I needed a show to do until I had one, mm -hmm. you know, until there was a, you know, a plot and then I had to patch it. And when I finished the patch, I realized, oh my God, I needed this so much. Yeah. I needed to work on something. 
Yeah, that, well, that means a lot to hear that. Um, you know, you sent me a, a really nice email after you did yours saying basically that. And I and I got so many other emails from other people basically saying those same things. So many people reached out and just said, like, thank you for giving me something to do that makes me feel like I'm valued and makes me feel like I do have skills, uh, make me, makes me feel like I do have an essential job. So that, that, that's been really cool. Yeah, it's one thing to go through you know, MA3 conversion training, it's one thing to you know right. to do your OSHA 30 course, but <laughs> it doesn't feel like you're working. No, absolutely. And, you know, four wall was great. They gave me an MA2 at the beginning of quarantine. I had it sitting on my desk for like a month and a half and I did all this learning, but it still wasn't the same. You know, it was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm learning some new skills. Great, but it's not the same as actually sitting and working. So I definitely understand what you mean. I was just going to say, I was like feeling like I was like playing pretend in my life because I implemented office hours for myself. So like every morning at 10 a.m. I'd go in with my Starbucks and then could not be bothered until 6 p.m. So I wouldn't answer the phone and I would just like work on whatever it was that I was working on on my computer. But it did make me feel like I actually had like some sort of a routine, which was really nice. Yeah. Do you normally have a routine? No, but, (laughs) you know, I mean, I think I just do so many different projects that it's hard to have a consistent thing. Like, you know, you have the things that you always do, like put face lotion on. You always do that no matter where you are. But when you wake up and when you go to sleep is always different. So. Yeah, but I think we both, Abby, we both have like when we're when we're doing a show together, we have a routine that we do every day. So it's almost like instead of having like a routine overall in your life, you have these little mini routines that you do. And 100%. so I think for for especially like Abby said, for me, when this all started, not having the routine of having different routines was a was kind of a, a mind bending thing for me. So I, I totally I'm with you there, like kind of coming up with a daily thing. That's what I've been doing lately. It's been super helpful. Yeah. So sort of what was the initial concept behind the previous contest we you know we saw some of the reactions to it but what were you thinking initially so the initial idea actually came about well before covid it was last christmas time um, i had a couple weeks off at the time which was amazing i was really looking forward to that i wish i would have would have known what i know now um <laughs> but I, I was doing i just decided hey i'm gonna make a little previs rig for myself and i'm gonna do a challenge this week and every day i'm gonna give myself an hour to previs a song and I have an hour from start to finish. I'm going to put out whatever I, I make. So I did that for a little while. It was kind of fun. And then Harrison Frenny gave uh, sent me a message. Uh, he's a he's a student at Rutgers. Uh, really really smart guy. Um, really bright future ahead of him. And and he was like, Hey, you should take what you've done and like make this a, a contest of some kind, or make these files public, and then make it. You know, people could people could do their own songs and make it a 60 minute challenge. I was like, Oh, that's really cool. But of course, I didn't have the time to Im- implement anything like that. But it kind of put that seed in the back of my head that maybe this could be something cool one day. So when everything started uh, with COVID, I noticed that you know all these companies were doing these previous contests for rock and roll and for live music, but there was never really anything for theater, and there was never, uh, and to my knowledge, hadn't been anything for theater because. Previs is still a relatively new technology in the theater world. Um, there's not a lot of people who are using it extensively, and uh, and so there hasn't really been any contests uh, specific to that market. So I was like, okay, let's uh, let's change that, and that's that's kind of the the start of it. And uh, before we leave the previous contest, mm-hmm. what was what was the response and what was the result? 
Oh, absolutely. So, so when I planned this contest originally, you know, I was like, okay, it's not going to be a huge, huge thing. We'll probably get maybe 30 entries, 40 tops. Like that would be, I'd consider a good, good result is if we got 30 to 40 people involved with it. Um, when it was all said and done, we had 93, 92, 92 or 93 individual entries um, from, I believe, at least eight countries. We had some from Russia, Turkey, England, Ireland. Uh, there was uh, Germany in there, Mexico. Canada, US. Um, so it was like this worldwide thing uh, with songs from pretty much any musical you could ever think of, some that I had never even heard of. Um, it was it was really cool to see the response was overwhelming. But of course, there were challenges with that as well. So when I designed the system, again, I designed it for 30 to 40 entries. So I had a panel of judges that was going to judge each entry, I was going to give people all this feedback, all this kind of stuff. And then when the the entries, you know, ballooned three times what I thought, it was kind of like dropping back and figuring out, oh, crap, how do I scale this and not overwork the judges that have volunteered their time? How do I deal with the, the scoring, the numbers, everything else? So I kind of in, in like the course of a couple of days had to put together, uh, you know, custom database stuff for that and and deal with all of the questions and deal with all of that. It was it was kind of overwhelming in the moment. But I think it all worked out. You know, I think that, you know, I had a couple of angry emails, but for the most part, every single person was was just super ha happy and grateful that it happened and had a really good time with it. Um, and the other big thing, too, is it was the companies that got involved with it. You know, when I first had the idea, my first reaction was, well, I need to reach out to Ann and Nick at ETC and be like, hey, is it OK if I do this? Are you planning anything like this? Because I want to make it EOS centric. I want to make it theater EOS, you know, but I didn't want to step on any toes if they were planning something with augmented or anything like that. And the response I got back was, we hadn't really been planning on it. We're really busy. If you want to do it, uh, you have our blessing. We just can't, like, we won't be able to, like, help you with it at all, but you can go for it. Uh, and so I did. And then it kind of blossomed from there into getting all a bunch of other companies on board and turning into what it was. I think my, 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 my biggest surprise when I realized that, hey, maybe this could be kind of cool is when I contacted Capture and I was like, hey, do you guys have any ideas, you know? Uh, about what you might could you could you help sponsor it? Could you help publicize it? And like, yeah, we could give a solo license. And I was like, oh, okay, so like this is this is going to turn into a thing. And you know, all the pri all the grand prizes ended up being in that you know three to five hundred dollar range, which is nothing to sneeze at when it comes to a grand prize, you know, um, especially for something like this. So, and so so who were all the manufacturers that were involved? Um, oh gosh, I should probably have a list in front of me. <laughs> so the grand prizes came from ETC. They gave a Nomad key and a gadget. Um, Capture, who gave a solo license. Um, Roscoe gave a mix book. And then Fourwall donated a, a DMX cat. So those were our four uh, grand prizes. I hope I'm not forgetting anything. Um, but yeah, those were our four grand prizes. And then um, all kinds of other companies did. I, so I had this idea of doing kind of like honorable mentions, because as I started to see the, the interest grow a little bit, I realized that four grand prizes wasn't going to be enough. Um, but I also there, there weren't a whole lot of other items that I could consider a, a prize for that. So I started reaching out to companies with kind of like funny ideas, like Creative Connors uh, to do like an automation award, because in the in the file, there was a lot of scenic automation that you could control with DMX. You could move scenery, you can move platforms. I was like, hey, why don't you, you know, if we if we 
we have one that has really great use of, of all this automation. Will you guys like send them a little swag package? And they said, yes. Uh, and then, you know, there were people you could move around. So I contacted ZFX. I was like, Hey, could you do something for like best human flight? And then like my mind just started reeling from there. And some of my friends started throwing in ideas for like funny, both funny prizes and also just like, okay, you know, best use of color, best use of moving lights to kind of recognize those videos that maybe didn't necessarily uh, have enough votes or have enough uh, judges critiques to make it into the finals, but still recognize some of the work of those people. And I think we have 13 of those from 11 different companies. Um, so that was pretty cool to, I keep saying pretty cool, <laughs> uh, but we had, so we had 13 well, of those. Pretty from, cool. Yeah. We had 13 of those were like 11 different companies. Um, and yeah, it, it was a crazy couple of months trying to manage. It was almost became a full-time job towards the end wrangling all of that between the vendors and the judges and the contestants but I'm glad I did it, so. Yeah, I remember right after texting Mike or like in the middle, like, so next month, another one. And he was like, Abby, don't even talk to me about this. <laughs> yeah. You can't do that. No, so I, I want to make it an annual thing. You know, I think that it was proven that there's a there's a market for something like this. Um, and when I say market, that mean, that implies monetization. I mean, I didn't make any money off of this, uh, but I, I think that there's a need for it. Um, there's it's, it's an excellent training tool for people. It's an excellent way for people to kind of fine tune their skills. You know, I had a lot of high school students enter who have never been able to touch a moving light in real life. And so for them to have a, a rig of like 30 moving lights and LEDs and all this stuff that they could play with was pretty huge, I think. Um, and they could run on their, their laptop. They didn't have to have a light board. They didn't have to have a, a special facility to go to or anything like that. So I want to continue that. Uh, I think next year I'm going to do some things differently. I probably won't have a full judging panel again. It'll probably be a popular vote instead with the option of getting feedback from judges if you'd like. Um, because when we had we had 90 some things that having the judging panel just added all this extra work and all this extra hassle and 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 really just chaos or better words into the process. Um, so maybe making it where you know students could request feedback if they would like um, or not. And uh, so I'm I'm excited to do that. I'm actually I'm in the process. Uh, I've just finished it of writing a blog about all of this, the the experience of doing it, kind of what I learned and what I want to do going forward. And that's available on my website today. So uh, if you're listening to this right now, you can head over to MikeWoodLT.com and, and read all about it. I've got some stats there about countries and, and, and places the entries came from and shows and lots of statistics, lots of information. So pretty cool read to check out. Oh, great. I'll include a link to that. Yeah, so just you. send it over to me. We'll do. And so uh, how about we talk about some of the work you guys have done? What do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I, I saw there was a really interesting new work that you designed last year called American Prom with Theater Works. So yeah, American Prom was pretty cool. Uh, unfortunately, Abby was not with me on that one. I had a, a very small budget on that show, so I was not able to bring really anybody with me. Um, I had a student uh, of mine at the time who happened to live in Colorado Springs who came out to observe a little bit on that show. Um, but other than that, I, you know, I had the electrician slash programmer from the from this the theater, and then it was kind of a one-person team. Um, so American Prom was a world premiere of a new play written by Idris Goodwin, who is a, uh, a black playwright. Um, and he, uh, so the, the theater company commissioned him to write a new work for this slot in their season. So a little bit different, you know, a lot of times when we're doing new works, it's like, okay, there's going to be a development period. You know, we're going to do workshops of it. There's going to be you know, all that stuff that's involved with a new work. But with this one, it was, it was different. It was, you know, hey, we've got this slot in our season. We want to commission a new work for it. Uh, and so they, they had Idris uh, write it and, uh, and then we produced 
produced it. And we produced it, I think the biggest challenge is we produced it on the normal timeline. So a normal tech schedule. We didn't really have that workshop time. We didn't have readings. We didn't do all that kind of stuff. So uh, uh, it was it was interesting to see it kind of come together um, and and also be, you know, going through rewrites and stuff kind of as through tech and, and trying to, to manage all of that uh, with a very tight timeline. Um, so the play uh, takes place kind of in any town USA, you know, small town, middle America. Um, and the, the two kind of central characters in the show are two teenagers uh, going to their senior prom. It's a white boy and a black girl. Um, in this town, the, the proms have always been not officially segregated, but basically segregated. You know, all, all the white kids kind of went to their own prom and all the black kids went to their own prom. Uh, and even though it wasn't official, that was kind of just the way things always were done. And these two kids were best friends and uh, they wanted to go to prom together. And uh, so it kind of followed the controversy in the town of that and kind of uncovering all of these prejudices and and. and and biases that, you know, of course, the town says, oh, we don't have, you know, there's no race problem here in this town, but there really was. And so it was that and it, it, the, kind of the central thing they decided to do is throw their own prom for themselves uh, and their friends in their garage. And so uh, the story kind of centers around that and explores how the people of that town dealt with it. Some dealt with it well, and a lot of them didn't deal with it very well. And so the set was really cool. So the set was designed by Lawrence Moten, who's a brilliant, brilliant scenic designer. Um, and it, it takes place all inside of a garage of a house. So there's a couple of scenes that take place outside of that garage, but most of it takes place in this garage. It's a box, you know, with rafters and walls and, you know, a, a lived in garage, kind of a garage that these kids turned into their hangout spot. And so there's a lot of challenges involved with that, both with having not a lot of space to work with and, uh, and, and having rafters and having all that kind of stuff. So how does lighting support the concepts behind the play? One of the big concepts in the in the play is that the characters, the, the two kids use music to kind of escape from the real world a little bit and use music to help tell their story and, and kind of explore their problems. And so uh, we kind of created two worlds that we used throughout there. There was like the story world whenever we were whenever we were in the you know the the book we were we were in realistic lighting uh, kind of you know make it look like a actual interior of a garage and then whenever the music would come in or they would start kind of going into the story world that's when we'd start getting saturated color or we'd get um you know some movement from gobos or something like that and kind of took us into this otherworldly fantasy kind of thing that was going on in the characters minds um so lawrence gave me some really awesome uh uh freedom with practicals in that way you know we had these practicals on the rafters of the garage ceiling that were fluorescent tubes which we you know these look like garage fluorescent tubes but we put a little strip of led tape behind the actual fluorescent tube and so we never lit up the actual tube itself uh, with you know the fluorescent tube we actually turned the leds on and so we could make them look like they were lit up or when they went into that song world all of a sudden those fluorescent lights became red or became blue or changed color um, and then the other favorite thing I think that Lawrence did with that was the back wall. And if you look at pictures of this early in the show, the back wall just looks like, you know, the backside of drywall, like an unfinished wall. But what it actually was, was stretched uh, gray kind of plastic visqueen material, kind of a thick gray, almost an RP screen kind of thing. And so I put all kinds of LEDs and fixtures and stuff behind that. And as soon as you backlit it, the entire wall became this like psych and it had different zones and we could make it look like it was water, make it look like it was 
it was morphing and changing and then in an instant snap back to just being great drywall. So um, it was kind of a it was a really cool example of that collaboration between lighting and scenic and figuring out how we can help each other accomplish uh, accomplish the the story in the best way. You know, my definition for the theater magic isn't that I can't tell how it's done. It's that I don't care. Right. And when you have these situations where it's, is that lighting? Is that scenic? Is that projection? Right. I don't know. I don't care. It works. Oh, 100%. I mean, and we went even farther than that. You know, we, we hit LED tape behind rafters and stuff. So some of the, so the, the, every other section of like, you know, between the stud walls would kind of be able to light up in different colors. I think we had something like 30 some different independent LED tape segments, which my production electrician hated me for. Sorry, John. Um, but uh, but it, it ended up being a really cool result. And then we also had uh, like practicals, like, you know, there was a, a, a work light in the garage. And so for one of the scenes, it takes place uh, at midnight that one of the characters is drunk in the garage. And really the only light on stage was that work light. And so, you know, we had 200 lights in the air and, you know, probably one of my favorite cues in the show is like this single work light and maybe a little bit of light coming in from the side somewhere else. So that was kind of cool. And then, of course, you know, TV practical that would light up and flicker as, as things came to life. And then we had some like, you know, $12 party DJ lights because at the end of the show, they actually throw this prom. And so we said, OK, well, what would they have? You know, what could they go down to Spencer's Gifts and get? What could they get at Party City for their prom? So we just went and we that's what we did. We got some little like $10 disco ball light color changing things that were sound activated those got put on stage and they became major lighting fixtures in the show for the for the prom at the end and then of course i'd be remiss to not to, to not give a shout out to lisa our director too who really was able to take again like a new work without any kind of really development time um to be able to to kind of wrangle and manage something like that and tell the story faithfully was was no easy task and so she did an amazing job with that and then all of the sound in the show you know again music played a really important part and so uh, rj jackson was our uh, our sound designer but he also composed all of the music in the show um, so that was that was really cool to collaborate with him on that and to get those tracks and to you know time code some stuff and to and to 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 be a part of something that was really completely new like that. It sounds like there was a really strong visual language for the show. Where did it come from? How did it get developed and how did it change over time? I think, uh, you know, in the early conversations with our director, Lisa, and with Lawrence, the scene designer, um, and really with the whole team, we, we identified by reading the script that we needed those two worlds. We needed this kind of music fantasy world and we needed the realistic world. And then for me, it, it kind of became easy at that point. I don't want to say easy, but it was like, OK, well, when we're in the real world, I'm going to light this like a, a realistic interior. I'm going to pay attention to time of day. I'm going to all the things you learn in your basics of design class. Right. I'm going to know what time of day it is. I'm going to know what season it is. I'm going to know where my light's coming from, et cetera, et cetera. And then when we go into the song world, that's when my like musical theater background comes into play. Cause I'm like, okay, I don't need to be necessarily as realistic anymore. I can, I can really play with color. I can really play with texture. And so, um, doing just by identifying those two separate worlds, I think that's really what allowed us all to, to create, uh, create our language, both visually and audibly, like the sound designer did the same thing. You know, we're in the, in the, uh, in in this in the book world, RJ had you know realistic sounds, the crickets in the background, or or you know street sounds, stuff like that. Then we went into the music world again. It was these amazing compositions, um, and uh, it kind of reinforced that a bit. I think a lot of my work, uh, I I really like collaborating with sound designers, especially. Um, I've actually done some sound design work myself. Um, I was a resident sound designer at a company up in upstate New York for a little while. 
and being able to reinforce what the sound is doing and vice versa, I think is 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 a way that lighting can really uh, can really collaborate in ways that aren't really possible with any other mediums. Because with scenery, with costumes, it's something physical, it's something tangible. But with lighting and sound, you don't you can't you can't touch it. And so the, they have a they have a an ability to really complement each other well. That's awesome. Uh, so tell me about American Stage in the Park and, you know, how long have you been doing it? Um, so yeah, I'll start and then Abby can kind of chime in on some of her experience too. Uh, I started doing American Stage in the Park, I think it was in 2014. Um, American Stage in the Park had been around for a long time. Um, American Stage is a professional theater company in St. Pete, Florida. They have a, a, an actual theater space in downtown St. Pete. I've done several shows for them in their inside space, and Abby's done a couple of those with me as well in the inside space. But then once a year, uh, they do a big outdoor show. It started out as just Shakespeare in the Park, and then uh, sometime in the early 2000s, uh, that transformed into musical theater. And so we start with an empty grass field, and then over the course of a month or so, it becomes... we. Br- put it in a stage, put in the lighting, put in like literally everything. We start with that field and we have to design and specify everything from the ground up. Um, in Florida, at the start of the rainy season, about I'd say maybe 2,000 feet from the Gulf, from the from the bay. So a lot of a lot of things that you don't have to think about in in traditional theater and an indoor theater uh, we have to we have to deal with out there. Uh, and so this was going to be my this year was supposed to be my seventh year doing the show. I, I told them a couple of years ago, like my goal, I want to do 10 in a row. That's going to be the the goal. And then we'll reexamine from there if we want to keep if I want to keep doing this or not. Um, but this was supposed to be year seven. And of course, it got uh, postponed and, and now probably canceled. Um, uh, so hopefully next year we'll be back out there. But Abby's been with me out there since I don't know. Abby, what was your first show that you, that you did with me out there? I- the producers was the first one I did, so I guess it's only been oh. two two parks, but it feels like I've been there for a while because yeah, I feel like you've like been there Rachel way longer than forever. That. Yeah. Well, I, Rachel, I met Rachel at Guard of Carnage, so it was you kind of met like all the key players. Um, yeah, Rachel Harrison Rachel's is our like, production stage manager. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just the producers and Mamma Mia, but it is really fun and it's a totally different challenge to think about what theater and what musicals can actually go into an outdoor space um, because there's some that you just like can't do out there so we do a park show every year and it's outside so we have to kind of wait until we start at eight but well we basically start at six by pulling out all of our tech tables and that has to be taken down and put back up every single day which can be a process and you know there's three of us usually sometimes four and then we usually have an intern as well so that's a lot of stations to put out but So that kind of takes up a good chunk of time. And our downbeat is at 8, but usually we can't see until, what do you think, like 8.30, 8.45 sometimes, depending. And it's in Florida, St. Petersburg. Um, So a lot of the times, well, we have to take notes. And then during the day, which actually this just started last year, we'll go into a trailer with all the windows like shut and can't see in um, to make our notes during the day because we can't do anything unless we want to be out there all night. It gets pretty cold though. So. Yeah, we we've we get maybe three hours per night with the uh, with the cast on stage, and that's just t- three total hours. It doesn't count breaks. It doesn't count you know again waiting for the sun to go down a little bit further. So being able to go into that trailer and and do our notes from the previous night means we don't have to stay in the field until two a.m. after everybody's already gone home. We can leave at eleven thirty like everybody else and not have to not have to do overnight programming sessions anymore, which has been pretty great. 
Well, I also think something that is very helpful for us and our team is Stamp, um, especially in the park, because mm -hmm. we're actually taking live video. So we it might not make total sense on previous, but we can kind of piece it together a little bit more with the video and you have right. your actual, like actually what you said coming into the into our ears saying like, this needs to be brighter. And you're like, okay, well, I can't tell so much from the video, but I said what I said. So yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's been an excellent part of our workflow we've added in the last year is, is a stamp by Sam Smallman. And uh, we, we do it, you know, stamp is really great because you can do your video documentation. You can of course link it to EOS and get all those timestamps in, but we took it a step farther and we made a little custom audio interface so we can actually record both of the show audio on the right channel then on the left channel, we have our comm audio. So now instead of trying to take pages and pages of notes and trying to decipher our handwriting the next day, we can just play back the stamp file and go to every place we, we stamped a note and just listen to what we said. And we get a lot more context that way. And we get a lot more uh, specificity to what, what, <laughs> what we meant by the note instead of just like, this needs to be brighter and then having no idea what we meant you know, 24 hours later. So it's been pretty great. So all those tools kind of together have made uh, have made it a lot easier to previs stamp all that stuff all the documentation has made it a lot easier to make theater happen in the last couple of years i have never heard of the software but that sounds amazing really yeah so uh, so stamp is a program made by sam smallman who works for etc it's not an etc program um, but I actually wrote a blog about how I use it. There's a there's a demo video of it as well on my website, kind of showing. Um, I think it was hairspray where you can hear Abby doing some follow spot notes in the background. You can see the EOS cue list going. So it links to your EOS. Anything that can talk over OSC or MIDI or serial, it can link to. And then you know when I hit go on EOS, it stamps that go on the video. So it's like, as I play it back the next day, I can go cue by cue and see and scrub through the video based on my lighting cues, which is really cool. Um, definitely been a huge game changer in, in my workflow and our workflow for sure. And it's, I think it's cool. Something that we've kind of started doing is um, Mike has more of an ability to move around. Cause even if we're not saying something you can, we have a little, what is it called? A stream deck. Mm -hmm. um, so it, they all have, programmable buttons on them and so mike will usually just like give it to me before he walks around and if he needs something he'll just like flail his arms and i'll hit the <laughs> button so then we can see the video like something was wrong here and um that's really helpful too to not have to like have mike run back and me try to call follow spots and take notes at the <laughs> same time while dalton's yeah. doing programming notes and whatever else is going on so yeah it gets quite quite hectic in the moment and so having having those tools is super super helpful you know, I know we already dug into some of your workflow and you know how you're working. Um, tell me more about American Stage in the Park. And the big challenge we have is, of course, the sun. You know, we we don't have a lot of control over the sun and when the sun sets, and that affects not only the actual like day to day work, but it also affects the design because the show runs for about six weeks. Uh, it used to be five, I think it's now six. And it starts out in mid-April and then ends towards the end of May. And so, of course, time is slowly changing over that time. So when we leave the show on opening night, it's pretty much dark when the show starts. But if we go back on closing night, the first half of Act 1 is still kind of in daylight. So it's like all this work that we spent on the overture, all this work we spent on the opening number of the song, the show is like, okay, well, nobody sees that anyway. Um, but we still put the same amount of work in because, you know, there's been plenty of times where it's been a rain delay or something like that. And the show does start after dark, even even later in the in the run. Um, and so we we, <laughs> we have to make sure that we're not cutting any corners just because of the sun.
Yeah, it's been cool to watch the the project grow. You know, when I when I first started with it in 2014, I was basically handed. I was like, okay, you have these lights. This is the the layout you can put your truss in, um, and the scene designer has to work with the same layout. And then I did that the first year, and I worked with uh, Scott Cooper, a great scenic designer in Florida. And then the next year, uh, uh, the scenic designer for In the Heights, we did I did it in the Heights, and the scenic designer Steve Mitchell and I were like, okay. We're not going to do in the heights with like these 30 lights and this same u-shaped truss system anymore like we're going to design this so we're not going to do it and so we went uh, we went to the producers and we said hey this is what we want to do will you trust us that we can make this happen and they said yes and then from there it's just kind of it's morphed into this whole other thing where we are really designing everything every year and every year it's a slightly different layout and a slightly different uh, configuration uh, anything else you want to tell me about American Stage in the Park? Um, Abby, why don't you talk about like the how you know the follow spot stuff you do there and and how to how that all works? I was works. just thinking about that. Um, yeah, so okay, I'm trying to describe this, but picture this field that has a stage, and then I don't maybe it's like 200 feet back is the trailer. Not even a trailer; it's like a shack that um, the light board and the soundboard goes in for them to run, so that it's covered. And then above that, you have scaffolding. And then our follow spot operators live up there for the show. Um, and so we have usually two or three um, just because of the space that's actually on up there and available to us. So it's two if we need actual follow spots in there. It's like you need the punch or three if we want source fours that we can we're, we're never doing that again, by the way. <laughs> cool. So two. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so then kind of talking more about our workflow and not necessarily specific to American State of the Park. Um, we see the designer run, Dalton, Mike, and I go. And um, while they are looking at cues and like what the show is actually going to look at, I'm scribbling down notes and kind of planning what needs to happen as far as follow spots goes. Um, and then I take the clip and I'm watching and I'm doing all the pickups. And then I put them into Mike's paperwork software and... Um, it makes all the paperwork for me. Well, you know, I put all the information in and then it makes it for me. And then there's this really cool tool that Mike just implemented that it can send all the information we need to EOS. So that's kind of how it all gets into, oh, I guess we don't do that for the park though. No. Well, it depends on what we're doing. So we have really kind of two separate things. You know, there's, there's the world where we use regular follow spots. And then now on every show, we try to start using uh, like Roby Robo spots or the BMFLs with like the manual rigs on them. Um, that's been kind of my my favorite new thing that we've added to our arsenal in the last year. I'm so used to doing that now that I forgot how to do it normally. <laughs> so without that, um, it, I have all the cues in my script. And then it's challenging as far as being outside because there's not a lot I can do if they if it's really windy and or if it's like whatever other circumstances are happening. And it's not like it's easy for them to get up and down. So if I need to swap out a color, that's a very big task to do. Um, right. So and sometimes well, I'll be like, you guys are really shaking. And they're like, yeah, it's because we're 200 feet away from the stage. Yeah. The wind is blowing and it's basically a hurricane outside in yeah. Florida. And well, and it affects the how we have to approach the design of the show, too, because there are times where it might be too windy for the follow spots to go up on the tower. And sure, it's not it's not unsafe for the audience to be there, but it's not safe to put somebody, you know, 30 feet in the air with just the harness and, and, the, and this big sail, you know. And so what we do is we we might have to leave a submaster for front light for uh, the board op. And, you know, they just the stage manager and the board op know like, OK, if the follow spots can't go up, then we're going to 
we're going to throw the front light sub up and it's going to look maybe terrible, but at least we have a show, you know, and same, same thing, you know, we've had, we had issues before where, you know, water messed up a follow spot ballast. And so, you know, it was the first show back after a couple of days off and spot two just didn't work. And of course they didn't discover it until two hours before the show. And, you know, we, the equipment came for at that time for, uh, I think it was a four wall show. Um, and, you know, they couldn't get us one in time because the depot was over in Orlando. So <laughs> they had to adjust. And it was a, it was a kind of a cool collaboration between spot one and the board op. You know, the spot two was kind of telling all of their cues as they were happening. And the board op was sometimes bringing up front light and sometimes spot one would try to cover both things. I, I wasn't there. I just read all about it in the rehearsal reports afterwards. And of course, my initial reaction was that, that I was angry. But then I was like, well, that's actually pretty impressive that they like they they were able to do that uh, in, in that short amount of time. Yeah, they really stepped up. Oh, yeah. I, I love listening to spots try to figure out all the stuff. And I always feel like I will try to give notes. And then whenever I my like protocol, I guess, or my routine is to have them bring down their paperwork with any notes that they have on it. And they're, I always am amazed at how specific they are. And they're like, during that one spot in that one song that does this exact thing. And I'm like, <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. And they're like, yeah, yeah it's Q87. And I'm like, again, I don't know what Q87 is. Let's yeah. let's take a look at a video. <laughs> but um, I think, Abby, one of my favorite things that you've you've had happen out there was, I think it was the, you were on the, yeah, you were on the producers. And we had, uh, uh, for, uh, springtime for Hitler, we had swastika gobos that we threw in our follow spot just to go completely over the top. And um, they had to drop in so quickly. And I think it was only two of them doing it. And didn't like they like, like one of them would move their light over so the other person could drop it in or something like that. Yeah. And like, it was like this yeah. like teamwork choreography up in the spot booth. They had a whole system. And I remember telling Mike, like, turn, listen to the spot channel for this because they're like, okay, ready? Are you ready? Let's go. Come on. <laughs> and they're like yelling at each other. And afterwards, yeah. I remember being like, guys, I'm really excited that you're so hype, but like I can hear you from the tech table, so not yeah. through comms. So you have to like maybe be quiet. Um, yeah. But I also think it's fun in the park because oftentimes we get interns from American Stage, sometimes who have never operated a follow spot before, um, or you know like have little to no experience, or sometimes we get people that have a ton of experience and are really good. But um, it's fun to kind of like teach people how to do this and what the standard is. But I also feel like I do a little of like, um, coaching of it is okay. You are safe to climb up there. We had somebody who was super afraid of heights during the producers and every day I would give her a pep talk and I was like, <laughs> listen, like you got this. I, I wouldn't send you up there if you weren't safe. I promise you you're okay. Just, you know, just go on up there and I promise you you'll be okay. And it would yeah. be like five to 10 minutes of me being like, girl, like it's good. You got this. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. The worst part too, is every year I try to make them a little higher too, because of course, you know, when you're that far away, we can't build a massive tower. So the follow spots end up being super low, but my ultimate goal is one day to have them go out in like a, uh, like a, a, a outdoor scissor lift where they can just drive it out from backstage, go up in the air and, and do it that way instead of the scaffolding. Or, you know, or I mean, I mean, if you're using robo spots, then well, it doesn't, yeah, have to I mean, be that was actually, that much of a structure. <laughs> 
Yeah, but then, sure. so then one, it's going to sway in the wind, though. Well, yeah, that, that was the conversation this year we were having with Four Wall. Four Wall's our, our vendor for this show. And uh, I was having a conversation with Scott Church about, can we get two robo spots in, you know, can we get, you know, Tempest Domes for them? Because we could put them another 10 feet up in the air if humans don't have to go up to them. And then, of course, the operators could be in the trailer and we don't have to worry about all these wind and the weather and all that kind of stuff. But it just kind of comes down to budget. You know, robo spots are still very expensive. But maybe one day, you know, maybe five years from now when the technology is more widespread and it's cheaper, that will be just kind of the norm. Um, Dalton, my programmer, um, spent some time as the electrician at Bay Street Theater, and he had some friends there. And uh, forgive me, I don't, I don't remember who it was at this point, but they actually kind of reverse engineered it and they made their own robo spot because uh, it's. I mean, the technology, like the, what's actually happening, is is not that high tech. It's you know a, a Arduino or a Raspberry Pi taking you know encoder values and spitting them back out as streaming ACN or as as DMX. Um, it's just an issue of making it reliable enough and making it trustworthy enough where you can you can use it every time. So when I say that I, I think the technology will become cheaper one day, I, I think I more mean that I think as more competitors emerge and as more as more people kind of get into this whole hey I could build this myself thing that we're seeing with LightHack and with all of these little do it yourself electronic projects that maybe some of these shows uh, have and other theaters have these other solutions that they've made themselves that work just as reliably. I know that that's something that you're passionate about, you know, constructing software, constructing solutions mm-hmm. when one doesn't, when the right one does not exist or when there's a way to make one better. So right. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that stuff. Yeah, I think that, you know, the biggest thing for me is on the software side of things. Uh, I, I, um, I, you know, I'm not a developer at all. I would never try to call myself that. I don't have, you know, I, I, I could never do what what a real developer does, um, but I like to tinker and I like to to experiment and learn that way. And every time I, I kind of experiment or learn with with a new piece of software or new hardware, my mind immediately goes into, okay, how could I modify this to make our workflow easier or make our lives a little bit easier? Um, and that kind of the first thing that got me started down that road was I think back in 2014 when I was like, you know what, I really don't like the way. Uh, please forgive me, John McKernan. I don't like the way that Lightwrite. <laughs> format like I don't like that I don't have much uh flexibility in how this stuff is formatted you know like I don't like the way these look like the, te- the software is great I can I can get all this data the data management is amazing but I don't really have customization over what it looks like and I want more out of the work notes so I thought okay well how could I how could I take something and transform it into a better work note tool for myself and that's where my kind of journey with filemaker began um, you know every tons of people in the lighting and, and the production industry use filemaker for uh, everything from like rehearsal report databases to lighting databases to follow spot cue sheets. You know, everybody, there's all kinds of solutions out there. But mine really started as a, I want to just be able to do work notes better. And I want to be able to take in the information that I already have from LightWrite and VectorWorks. And I want to, and I want to be able to present it in a way that I think looks good and that uh, makes sense for the, for the shows I'm working on and the teams that I'm working with. So it started with that. And then uh, once I started to kind of learn how to, to use those tools, I realized pretty quickly, well, wait a second. Like I've got all of these different pieces of software. I've got Vectorworks, I've got Lightrite, I've got Excel, I've got Google Sheets, I've got all these different things. I've got EOS, but all these numbers about all these different things that all are part of the same show, but they're in all of these different pieces of software that are really hard to talk to one another. I was like, it could be potentially a useful piece of information to know how many spot cues are contained within this lighting queue. 
Um, and so I started to think, how can I take all of this information, these vast amounts of, of numbers and data, and put them into one uh, one solution that could then cross-reference itself and, and kind of uh, and, and and be useful that way. And that's kind of where the paperwork management portal, which was never supposed to be the title, it was just the working title, and nobody's ever given me a better name for it, so it kind of stuck. <laughs> uh, that's where that kind of began, and now it's kind of blossomed into this massive project where it handles pretty much all of all of our paperwork. Abby, in your workflow, what do you use it for? I mostly use it for follow spots and then we'll also use it for work notes. It's great to just pop them in. I still take work notes by hand, but then at the end of the night, we'll kind of collect everyone else's. Like we talked about, we have a only a three person team. So it's a lot of times Dalton will have a bunch and Mike will have some that he scribbled down. I have some, the production electrician might have some. And so I'll combine them all into that. And then there's this great feature that I can just like send them right out um, from that. And it's very helpful. I also, something that I've really, really like is how you can have all the different contact pages to have like all of the actors in there and all the creative team and our team. It's very helpful to me because I can just like, it's all there. I have, it's just nice to have all the information that I need in one spot instead of having to go through like 80 different programs. Yeah. I think the key word you said there kind of what my driving force behind it is the word helpful. Like my goal with it was always to make something that was going to be helpful for me and helpful for the people I was working with. And so that's like, you know, you know we, we, we'll be sitting there during tech and I'll be like, Hey, can you like, it would be really great if this button was over here and I'll be like, okay. And then on the break, she'll come back and be like, Oh, the button moved. I'm like, yeah, of course it moved. Um, so that's been really cool to be able to do that. And then, you know, I've created a couple of other solutions uh, for focus photo documentation and some stuff like that. Um, I've always said like my, my paperwork has made it to Broadway before I did. Uh, I, I've, made, I've made a couple of like custom tools for some friends and stuff like that, um, which has been really fun. But uh, for the most part, it, it, again, it's like, I wanna help people, uh, help people solve the problems that they're having and make their lives a little bit easier so we can all go home a little faster. <laughs> What is the, what was the sort of front end or what did you build the paperwork program on? Uh, it's all, ba all based in FileMaker. Um, so really everything, and this is where it goes back to like, I'm not a, a professional developer by any means. So I don't have the ability or the knowledge to like write an actual computer program from scratch. And so that's where, or, or an application from scratch. So that's where FileMaker comes in handy because it, it, it it allows people who don't have a, a really strong, like necessarily pro computer programming background to create things kind of quickly. Now, of course, that can also be a problem because it allows people who don't know what they're doing to create things that seem like they work, but can actually have a lot of problems later on down the road, which was a, a learning experience for myself for sure. Um, but now I've, you know, I, I wouldn't even consider myself like at the intermediate level of even what FileMaker is capable of. But I, I, for the, for the purposes of stage lighting, I'm pretty much an expert at it, but don't ask me to do much else with it, you know? Uh, you know, I, I do want to come back to your residency at City Springs in Atlanta, but mm -hmm. you know, I know that you have an issue with using interns as unpaid labor. Mm -hmm. And I know that you must have seen cases where somebody who's really gifted and who's really talented cannot follow the, the you know, the industry offers this, hey, just work for free for a while and yeah. see if something happens. For me, the, the first thing I'm trying to do is, and this is when we get back from COVID, is trying to start doing more outreach to local schools that aren't the performing arts schools, aren't the, you know, the big expensive performing arts uh, uh, colleges and stuff, and saying like, hey, like I'm in town, I'm doing this cool thing, I'd love to come talk to your students who might be in some kind of a vocational program or an electrical program or something like that, and be like, hey, this is what I do, this is this industry that exists, trying to get like the word out about 
about the stuff that we're doing to people who might not otherwise hear it. Um, so I, that's one of the things I'm trying to do. And then, uh, you know, you, you, know, you asked the question of like, how do we, how do we address this in a, in a systemic level? Um, and I, I think getting, getting theaters to, to stop, uh, to stop, exploiting young people is 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 a challenge um, for me I think that that is maybe an education campaign as somebody who who works a lot in education and who loves working in education even alongside my professional work um, that's where it starts for me I, I I've been a long time proponent of the idea that like most of the problems that we have in this country and in this world come down to education at the end of it like at the end of the day it's, it's education is the root of all of that and it was the, the sam seaborn quote from uh west wing like, education is the silver bullet right solves all these things and so to me like when i look at problems in our industry i'm like okay how can i use my influence in the ed education world to start changing some of these things very early on so that when these people get to the professional world or when they get to college where they get to these things they're you know, they're, they're in a different place than somebody who didn't have those opportunities. Um, if that makes, hopefully that makes some kind of sense. Uh, that totally makes sense. Yeah. And it makes you want to ask you more about your influence in the education world and what are you doing <laughs> in education. Sure. Uh, Abby is my first success story. I think she was the, uh, her, there are two students that were in her graduating class, Abby, and then Jake Price, who is also a, a working designer. He's in the Tampa area. Um, they both were kind of like my first, uh, first glimpses into like, oh, wow, like, I can I can make a change in people's lives that that can stick with them. Um, and then from there, I've had, uh, I can't even count the amount of students that I've had that have not necessarily gone on to careers in the industry, but some that are some that work in recording, some that work nothing, you know, not in the industry at all, but who took the skills and stuff that they learned in in my, you know, scenery class or my lighting design class, and they're applying it to their to their work and wherever they happen to be. Um, so I've, you know, I, I started doing that at the, the high school level, performing arts high school in Tampa. Um, at the same time, I taught at a community college in Tampa, teaching kind of a, a general stagecraft class. And it, I mean, if you want to talk about, uh, you know, students who necessarily don't have a background, I mean, that was that was a good example of that. It was um, students at the community college who some, you know, they kind of were interested in theater, but didn't really have any idea of where they wanted to go. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And so I, I quickly realized that, OK, well, maybe instead of teaching just the nuts and bolts of stagecraft and having, okay, well, today we're going to learn how to use a miter saw and today we're going to learn how to hang a light. Instead, like, I want to use this as an opportunity to get them excited about theater and get them in, bring in guest speakers and be like, these are different careers you can have in this business because that's what they were there for. They were there to learn about, you know, what was possible, not necessarily the, the nuts and bolts of how to do every single little thing. So that was kind of cool to do that. And then after that, I taught at a uh, polar opposite of that. I taught it at the oldest private school in the United States up in New York City. Um, and then I also taught at Marymount Manhattan for a little while, um, teaching some lighting classes. So I've had kind of a wide variety of, of educational jobs. And then, of course, in addition to that, all the educational design work that I've done. Um, you know, Abby has worked on several of those with me, you know, where I'll say, hey, like, I've got a school has approached me to do a design. They're offering $1,000 uh, for like whatever we do. Do you want to come in? We'll split it three ways. Each one of us will make 300 and we'll spend a couple of days there kind of teaching these students and giving them a glimpse. And, you know, if, I, if I've got time in the schedule, I'm going to do that. And Abby and Dalton have both kind of done that, too. That's I'm that's sad my... that we didn't get to do that this year, too, because that was kind yeah. of in the plans for our April. So 
Oh, yeah. So, yeah, before this all started, we had, uh, I think it was seven different shows over the course of eight weeks that were supposed to be back to back to back. And um, we did the first one and then everything got canceled. But we were, you know, we were going to be in Florida for the park show already. And we were looking at the schedule and I was talking to actually to Blake, which is where Abby went and the school I used to teach at to, to Sean, who's the director there now. I was like, hey, you guys have anything going on. You want us to come in and like do a master class or anything? We've got a couple of days to kill. And that morphed into us like designing hairspray for them and, you know, working alongside their students and stuff. And so we're like, OK, well, you know, we're going to be in town anyway and we've got the time. Like, let's just do it. And uh, of course, that didn't work out, but hopefully it will soon. Uh, so I know you had some more thoughts about FileMaker that you wanted to tell me. Or, oh, yeah. Um... So kind of along the lines of of this educational outreach is uh, I, I, one of my goals is for a long time is to start putting a lot of content online and making it available to people who can't go to a theater and making it available to to, to students and professionals alike who don't have the resources, uh, both in money or time or pro physical proximity to a place teaching that, you know, to get some of these skills. And so um, one of those big things was was FileMaker. Uh, all kinds of people in the industry are trying to make their own solutions for all kinds of different paperwork problems that they might have and uh, you know you, you get little glimpses of it here and there in the different forums you'll see like hey I'm trying to make this thing and you're like I think that they're talking about a lighting database but I'm not hundred percent sure so uh, so anyway uh, what I decided to do was to start taking some of my filemaker knowledge and kind of distilling that into uh, smaller lessons where on YouTube now I've got uh, a, the first chapter is up and by the time this airs I'll have the start of the second chapter where I kind of just start from scratch and I, I walk the users or the students through building their own solution from the ground up kind of in the same way that I did it six or seven years ago we start with a work note database and then we're going to keep expanding it from there. And I'm really not sure where it's going to go. Like right now, all it does is work notes and instruments uh, in instrument management. Um, chapter two is going to start focusing on creating, you know, instrument schedules and channel reports and all that kind of stuff, that other paperwork. Um, and then eventually maybe, you know, it'll turn into a, a full unit or a full series on how to create an entire paperwork program from the ground up, which I think is pretty cool. Where can people see those things? Where can they find the, the, those seminars? Absolutely. So basically the, the one-stop shop for everything is on my website. It's mikewoodld.com. Um, there's links to my YouTube channel there, um, especially with this FileMaker stuff, I've got it split up into individual sections so you can see, you know, it'll take you to the exact links you need. And then all the other content I'm, I'm producing is there. Uh, one of my goals is to keep growing that beyond just FileMaker. So when we get back to work in the industry, I really want to film more behind the scenes stuff, do, you know, little five to 10 minute videos on like the process behind this show, really kind of show the world of, of theatrical lighting in a way that I don't think anybody is doing right now. And, and forgive me if there is somebody, uh, you know, but I'm not aware that, that there is, you know, um, you know, Christian Jackson does that with, with concert lighting, with EDM stuff, and he does an amazing job of it. And that was kind of one of the things like, okay, well, this doesn't exist in our industry. So let me see what I can do, you know, share this stuff with, with people. So see how that goes. Building off the fun videos that you're probably going to do um, that I'm really excited for our follow spot video that we potentially mm -hmm. might make. So um, I think it actually came up during hairspray during big doll's house. There are so many cues, follow spot cues that literally happen so quickly that I don't stop talking for the entire three minute song. And so we ran out of time on that show, but we want to do like a split screen of me calling and then the camera of the actual robo spot 
and then the stage to kind of see it all play together. Um, And so I'm excited to see like what show that actually ends up happening on. Yeah, that's what experiment we did was actually taking the the RSTP stream from the Robo Spot camera and because it's available on the network, so we could grab it and record it. I'm I'm excited to do that too. Um, yeah, we'll see how that all goes. I wanna I wanna just keep expanding that. Uh, I just want to ask you about one other production or one other uh, one other gig you have, mm-hmm. which is I know you have a residency at City Springs in Atlanta. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start because I think this is kind of cool in that, you know, Abby also has a residency there and Dalton also has, you know, usually when you hear about resident positions, it's like the designer is the resident. Um, But we've been able to, you know, we have a resident programmer, we have resident associates, which is pretty cool. So this is actually the third residency that I've had in my career. Um, And I really enjoy it because it you don't have to worry like, okay, where's the next show going to go? You know, I've got to worry from a show to show basis. I can instead say like, all right, how can we as a group of people that are doing these shows over and over, how can we grow as artists together? How can we help each other? How can we figure out how each other work? How can we collaborate? And I think that the process that way is way better than walking into a brand new room every single time you do a show. So that uh, City Springs came about uh, a couple years ago. I got a, I got a, a text message from a buddy of mine named Brian who was a production manager in Tampa, who's like, hey, I got some, I have some friends up in Sandy Springs, uh, right outside of Atlanta, who are starting this musical theater company. Like they've got funding, they've got a brand new venue, they've got all kinds of, uh, all kinds of cool stuff happening. I think that you should talk to them. And so then it, we had some casual conversations and was like, okay, you know, I'd love to come do some shows. And that morphed into, okay, well, you know, why don't we say you're going to do the whole first season? And then I said, oh, okay. And that worked out. And then as that was working, I was like, okay, well, I can't do this by myself. Like you're trying to do this massive scale musical theater. I need people. And so I was like, oh, I've got, I've got Abby, I've got Dalton, I've got Jess, I've got a couple of other people that I work with a lot. Let's, let's see if we can't get them contracts. And at first uh, you guys all started out on a show by show basis, right, Abby? Um, yeah. And now you've, you've morphed into having season long contracts. So how does that, how is that for you? Like, uh, not in a design standpoint, but like having this other kind of work where it's guaranteed. Um, I think there's two sides of it that I kind of want to touch on. One is it's lovely to have like work. It's kind of like playing Tetris with your life um, of like, I have these five shows that I've committed to now. How can I make the rest of my life fill into that? Um, So that's great. But I think it's also, there's an added challenge of being with Ailey. Um, and there are sometimes there are just things sometimes that I can't miss being the lighting supervisor at Ailey. So like Mary Poppins was, which was a show at city Springs was right over our tech times, our new work tech. So I, I can't miss that. Um, so it's nice to have the five shows. It sometimes can be a little stressful, um, to try to like make everything work because you want to do everything. Like you, you, <laughs> It's, it's also exciting and um, to be in the room with the same people that you're growing with and like, especially our team, um, which is now like family, like it's, it's great, but sometimes can be a little like, whoa, there's, there's a lot, but. Um, yeah, I think that's you know, having that, our little family is fun because like, 
especially this year, it was going to be it was going to be a lot. Uh, Abby wasn't with us on every project schedule, but Dalton and I were going to be basically living together for like six of the eight weeks. And so we were like, OK, how is this going to work? Are we going to hate each other by the end of this? Because like before this, like, all right, we'll, we'll see each other in like one and a half, two week doses every couple of months. That works out really well. Um, so unfortunately, we didn't get to finish that experiment, but we'll see maybe next year. <laughs> so what does that mean uh, as far as consistency? You know, is this one system you put up for a season? Is, you know, how do design mm -hmm. discussions happen? Uh, when do they happen? City Springs does kind of just like a large scale musical theater. The theater is an 1100 seat proscenium house, uh, super well equipped. There's, it's almost all LED. I think on our last show, we had maybe six incandescent fixtures, not counting practicals. Um, there's like 40 some moving lights in the house in the house inventory uh, and then we usually do a rental package on top of that from four wall with extra extra movers typically um and so uh it's kind of a playground in a way because it's like I, I have pretty much anything we need and it's, it's kind of spoiled me for designing smaller plays and stuff where i'm like oh i gotta pick gel again i gotta figure out uh, <laughs> i have to specify this stuff in advance what um because you know you have a regular everything can change color that's pretty cool but uh every so Anyway, the, the, the theater does these big musical theater things, and because they're still so new, they don't have a shop. They don't have a lot of that stuff yet, so they, they rent most of their scenic and costume packages. So we'll rent a set package from, like, a Pittsburgh CLO or from the Networks Tour. You know, we've had a couple of the Networks First National Tour sets that we've rented. Um, and because of that, it means that we are really, you know, we're designing a plot for each show from scratch. So it, I think the original idea was maybe with the same team, we could have the same plot in place, but I, I quickly made them realize that that was not realistic because they, we can't do gentleman's guide and South Pacific using the same plot. You know um, what I will say there though, is we have tried to normalize some things. So like for instance, our front of house hang is almost always the same. Now we have the same front light system. We have the same box boom system, same balconies. Um, and we focus most of our efforts over the stage. So kind of like a, a touring show would, because uh, a lot of our, our schedule is reminiscent of like a tour coming into a venue where it's a very quick time. Um, and, you know, the more we can do on stage, the better versus having somebody harness up and climb out to the box booms and stuff like that. You know, I'd rather I'd rather spend the money on throwing a moving light on a piece of truss uh, kind of in an apron position than, than the six-hour call it's going to take for three electricians to hang a whole system of lights in the box booms because we just don't have that time in the uh, in the in the space. So so yeah, so it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of of having systems that we stick with, and then also kind of designing show by show. And then from a control standpoint, that we stick to. Like we have a tech table layout, and like it's like muscle memory at that point, which I think is really important. Um, especially when you're going from project to project to have some semblance of normal and whatever you can control. So for me, that's channel numbering. I know that my channel numbers are the same from show to show. Um, I know that when I'm sitting at my tech table, if I look to my left, I'm going to have a cue sheet. If I look to my right, I'm going to have a magic sheet, stuff like that. So I have that muscle memory and I'm not reinventing the wheel every single time I do a production. So where can people find your work? Where can they see the things you've done? Where can they see the seminars you're doing? Where can they find out what you're up to next? Yeah. So my, uh, my big social media platform is Instagram. Most of my stuff like in real time gets posted to Instagram first, like any kind of announcements or anything else that I have goes there. Um, and then of course, like, kind of the central hub for everything is my website. So it's mikewoodlt.com. 
Um, and you can uh, you can find all the classes I've done on my webinars. There's schedules for the future. There's calendars of like where I'm going to be in your city. So if, if like you're listening to this and you're a student and you're like, hey, I really want to come out and watch and sit in on a tech, uh, check out that calendar. And if I'm going to be in, if we're going to be in your city, then reach out. You know, um, so probably there. And then pretty much on any social media, I'm at Mike Wood LD. Um, I don't think there's any platform that I don't haven't reserved that username on, even if I don't use the platform. <laughs> And of course, you can find all that be stuff through my website too. But she also has an amazing website of her own. Thank you. And where can we find that? It is abbymayld.com. <laughs> wonder where I got that from. Um, and then my Instagram is underscore abbymay underscore. All right. Mike, Abby, thank you so much for being on the show today. You all right. Too. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. Use the contact form there to let us know what you think. And you can also check out all of our previous episodes there. We're on Instagram at Podcasting Light. We tweet at Podcasting Light. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for listening. Have a great show.